Hello, this is Jesse Weiler from Autoramus Bulletin. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Timothy O'Malley, who wrote an article recently for Autoramus Bulletin entitled Medieval Ascent, Communion of Body and Soul as an Ascending Model for Liturgy. This is a fascinating conversation about a lot of things that maybe we wouldn't think about right away about the laity's involvement in medieval times. So without further ado, another Autoramus interview. Dr. O'Malley, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing quite well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, uh, I am very much loving the article that you wrote for Autoramus, and I'm very excited to dive into some of the nuance of the article. I'm very curious as to what what inspired you to write this and to look into this matter. Well, one of the things that uh, I've been very interested in is liturgical participation in various eras. And the fact that we often define participation according to a certain norm that we possess, either from the 19th, 20th, or 21st century, whatever that norm is. I think this is really hard to do when you're talking about historical events, because just as rights have changed over time, so have our uh, experience of the world changed over time, right? So my interest was understanding how, in some way, shape, or form, we could ask, how a lay person in the medieval era might have experienced the liturgy, might have participated in it in such a way that it's different than our own, but it offers a kind of legitimacy. It's its own particular way of participation. And so it helps us actually think a little bit more di- uh, different ourselves. It thinks uh, we think differently about participation too. Right. And of course, you know, in the middle medieval times, they did not have uh, trial less electitudine. They didn't have Pope Pius X talking about active participation. And some of these theologies and philosophies grow over time. And so that you're right. I mean, that's fascinating to kind of overlay some of the things we know now and place it over top, which is why I think, as you mentioned, there might be a misconception because we're using our own understanding of active participation for the laity to describe what was happening in the middle uh, medieval times. But in, in their times, they didn't have all of this, you know, thought processes. So, so kind of, could you kind of go over some of the problems um, in the, in the research that you saw that were, that you're kind of going over again? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, this theme of retrieving an authentic sense of lay participation in medieval Catholicism uh, is, is by no means new uh, a, a number of social historians have dealt with it. They noted uh, the ways that uh, lay folk participated in the mass in a particular kind of social way, right? So there would be the passing of the pox board and uh, the, the, this peace board that would be an act of, of kissing of it. Uh, there was the guilds and the own sort of uh, donation to uh, fund altar candles and that the guilds would take over the running of this particular altar. And so masses would be celebrated there. This has been known for quite some time. I think one of the things where uh, it's worth pushing it further is thinking about the aesthetics of the liturgy. So it's not just the social participation, but in fact, there's something going on where One of the reasons we get participation wrong in the medieval period is because we primarily understand liturgy from what I would call a clerical perspective. We think about the texts, 
that are to be said, what people are doing who are formally running the right. And we forget that the human body sees, tastes, touches, senses, and that it's all these acts of sensation that are part of the act of participation. And so rather than think about the medieval period as bereft of any authentic participation, in fact, it often produced a kind of sensory, uh, a feast for the senses. And through this, enabled people to participate, for example, in the Eucharistic sacrifice or in the hours, uh, whatever sort of liturgy was under display. So if you, you pay attention to the senses, you'll learn a lot about what participation would mean. I think that's fascinating. And you you even mentioned this, um, the clerical advantage of all of this. And you, and we see that in the arts, too, because if you have patrons of the arts, what you're actually going to see is probably that clerical filter because they're the, they're the ones who are commissioning works and, and all of that as well. And so where do we have resources to be able to identify what was happening with the laity during those times? Yeah, I think... Um Part of what's in the article, of course, is uh, a sort of theory of sensation as a whole. So the senses, we think about sensation after the Enlightenment. We think about, okay, I see something, I see it, it enters into my mind, and now it's a part of me, because I. But, but my eyes are just some sort of instrument for this seeing. This is not how sensation took place necessarily, or was understood to take place in medieval uh, sort of optics, actually, the, the study of optics. So that there was an actual, almost like a kind of physical encounter between the eye and what was seen. And therefore the act of beholding, take something like ocular communion, uh, which I'm not saying that one should, you know, sort of hold that up as the ideal today, but ocular communion, to look at the Eucharist rather than to consume it. The assumption is like, okay, this is uh, a replacement for actually eating the Eucharist. It's inadequate. There's nothing that's tangible about it. It's really hard to make this argument once you pay attention to optics, that to see something was really to touch it. I can't go into, into all of this in the article, but uh, this kind of sensation around, for example, the Eucharist uh, led to all sorts of very um, fascinating aesthetic developments. So that would, it was a really framing of the Eucharist as this encounter of sight uh, and sonic, right? The, the, the listening. So you would have really extraordinary altar pieces that presented an image, for example, of the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, lactating, holding Christ on what looked like a corporal. So you saw this image next to this host that was uh, held up, but concurrent with all of this, right? Um, there might've been a sanctus that was played. At least we know that, that some of the mass settings, uh, like uh, the one of uh, Guillaume Dufay, uh, his uh, Annunciation mass setting, he actually places the text of the Annunciation in the, in the polyphony itself. So as the consecration is taking place, you hear uh, uh, verbum caro factum est, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so there is this kind of playfulness of the imagination of the senses so that people are understanding what's happening. They're delighting in what is happening, or at least some are, like any era. I'm sure there were people who had no idea that was going on. But there was a sense of what was going on, and this whole kind of sonic sensory vision enabled a deeper participation in what was taking place. So are we to understand that as, as the liturgy kind of evolves over time, the lay participation is also congruently evolving 
Is it in tandem? Is it kind of in its own direction? I mean, I think it's certainly different. Uh, You know, certainly we have, um, there is an over-romanticization of, I think, medieval piety. Sometimes if you read certain works that make it seem like every person is really devout and really interested and totally devoted. I would say that as things develop in the liturgy, it has an effect upon what happens in lay piety, but lay piety continues to have an effect upon the liturgy, right? Devotional life has an effect on the liturgy and sensation. And so, you know, take, uh, you often read a number of works that say the doctrine of transubstantiation was some imposition of the scholastics uh, upon, you know, the people to say, okay, this is the real host that is the body of Christ, and we're going to tell you what this is. In fact, the doctrine of transubstantiation arises from a delight in Eucharistic processions, in Eucharistic preaching, in the adoration of the host, you can't really separate the two. And I think part of our problem is that a lot of those who compose or have been interested in liturgical history have mostly been interested in the clerical side. They've not been interested in devotional Catholicism and popular Catholicism in those rites and rituals that surround liturgical development. I, I think you're right there. And I think uh, along those lines, too, it's um, it's very cyclical as well. And even kind of the pendulum swinging back and forth. And so we have this um, this beautiful devotion to the Eucharist, so much so that maybe that kind of turns into a type of Jansenism where infrequent reception is encouraged. And then all of a sudden now we have a, a vast majority of Catholics don't understand or believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. And so we have this swinging back and forth, you know, hopefully that we can kind of land in a true and and moderate place, but one that is Again, authentic and true. So how do you see this leading up to some of those um, overly clerical responses to, you know, liturgy beyond the medieval times? Yeah, I mean, for me, a lot of the existential, I should say, or personal dimensions of this article emerge from myself being a layman who attends uh, the liturgy regularly, prays the liturgy, celebrates the liturgy. And I think one of the things that it, it, it surfaces for me is, you know, a lot of focus. Take uh, 2010, right? The, the, the Roman Missal is translated. There's a great desire to explain what takes place in the Roman Missal, to focus on the speech. And I suspect one of the things that we forgot, I mean, in, in reality, let's just be frank, this didn't, the new translation into English, for example, didn't change most of our lives, Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason it didn't is because most of us, as we celebrate the Mass, are not paying attention to text alone, right? Participation is a multifaceted process for us. So it, we're t- attending to stained glass windows or light to a crucifix uh, that is to be perceived. We're not always listening to the text. I mean, um, I always I joke about this. I'm, you know, I'm a dad, too. And, you know, it's it's often the case that I actually am barely paying attention to the words of the mass because I'm trying to keep my children from throwing themselves into the baptismal font. And so it's this material dimension, this material culture that I, I suspect we've forgotten, not because we want to say you shouldn't understand that the mass is a sacrifice. You shouldn't receive the blessed sacrament. Um, you know, Pius X pushes for this and it's exactly what should be pushed for. Um, regular reception, Thomas Aquinas himself argued for it, right? So this should happen, 
But on the other hand, we can't forget the senses and we can't forget the aesthetic or manifold ways that the human being is invited to participate. And there's a certain clericalized sense where the only authentic participation is understanding, listening to the words, saying the words that I think does a detriment to the human person. I, I love that. And I think that the human element is particularly interesting to me, too, because the one uh, constant in all of this is that you're you're a parent trying to get their children to understand Christianity. But so were those parents in the medieval times. They were trying to do the same thing. Now, there were obviously different things happening in different uh, in different ways with the liturgy. But in the end, you're a parent and you're trying to get your children to understand these things. And so I love that that's that the humanity is that common thread there. And then we also have to understand that that the Holy Spirit and the graces that come from this you know, fill in any of those gaps that are there when when there is a chasm between, you know, uh, authenticity and, and what we have access to. So um, so if 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 we're looking at this again from the family standpoint, what what do you see as the family's participation in in, in the sacred liturgy to the degree that they could in the medieval times? Well, um, you know, this is an area that that sort of extends beyond precisely what I looked at. Um, I would say that, uh, you, you know, the the work of the family, of course, the liturgical life was lived well outside the walls of the church. Right. And so if you pay attention to histories, you have the regular sort of liturgical cycle and calendar that mark the entirety of life, festivities, devotions. Uh, especially uh, close to major liturgical centers. So the family's life certainly would have been defined by this degree of participation. There would have been much to behold, much to gaze upon. In some ways, you know, I think an experience of an Italian Catholic in Boston growing up in 1940 was more akin to what a family might engage in than it is today, right? Regular processions, a marking of major feasts, the, the movement of the liturgy outside of the walls. Uh, and so I think that degree of availability was there. Uh, as I say in the article, I mean, I'm, I'm very hesitant to overmake some of these arguments because there is a way and a, a fear of mine that if you make it too far, you try to recreate some mm -hmm. past time, right? We, we're not medievals and we right. can't go back. We sense different. We understand differently. And further, the thing you realize when you read medieval history is that, yes, there were extraordinary places that were doing wonderful things, and then there were places that were not. And so, um, you know, I, I hesitate to say exactly 100% what the family was doing, but I do think that what you do consistently see is not quite much, so much the border between the place of prayer and the place of sacrifice and the place of the rest of existence. I think I think that probably makes a lot of sense. And and it, it leads me to wonder, kind of going back to the very first part of our conversation here and the interest in this. Are there some other areas in church history that you think would be worth taking another look at from this perspective? Sure. I mean, I think the work that needs to be done simply, you know, when I say medieval, we're talking about an extraordinary long period of time. You know, we're, we're, we're functionally talking from. Uh, 600, 700 until 1450, 1500, uh, not to mention the modes of 
devotional poetry and other sort of spiritual works that emerge out of this period, some of the earliest translations of things into the vernacular. Uh, I find very interesting, for example, um, Mechtild of Magdeburg, uh, Gertrude the Great of Helfta, and uh, Mechtild of Hackeborn. There's a lot of Mechtilds, as it turns out, in this Helfta community. <laughs> um, they had written a variety of spiritual literature around the liturgy, uh, and a good deal of it was some of the earliest material translated into the vernacular. So almost before the Council of Trent, you had very popular Middle English and uh, sort of Middle German works being translated that would have infused lay piety more than we imagine it to be. And so I think, I, I suppose what I would encourage all of us as we think historically is not to bring exclusively our own our own assumptions into it, but to presume that there might have been unknown flowers that uh, I suppose we haven't looked at. And uh, my, my last question is, I think certainly technology plays a role in all of this as well. And when Vatican II was happening, there wasn't a lot of communication happening uh, back and forth about implementation and things like that. Now, of course, we have many, many different ways for the laity to express their concerns and their ideas to help continue the growth of the church. Uh, do you see that as a, an entirely positive thing? And, and where, where can that maybe get into some bad area? Yeah, I mean, I suspect it is a positive thing. And I wish my priest, I mean, I think one of the things you realize about sort of medieval preaching, for example, was actually rather dynamic. And they understood that, uh, there was a kind of dynamism necessary for preaching. So when I think about liturgical preaching today, I think about how abysmal it is. I feel like if if some clerics listened more to lay people, it would actually be quite grand. Um, the, the same goes with the use of the body and the over-explanation of, of every particular liturgical act, as if um, we are the stupidest people who have ever been alive, and we need to have every moment of every day explained to us. It's, it's actually mildly offensive. So in some ways, I kind of wish there would be more listening um, you know, I don't think that the liturgy is something that, uh, you know, lay folk should, I don't think anyone should control it or it shouldn't be a kind of voting body. I mean, I know one parish that studied what was the ideal length of time for the mass and changed their mass time according to that. That's bad. On the other hand, it might be nice to actually listen more to lay liturgical experience that I, I actually think, I just don't suspect most of those in seminary formation are thinking a good deal about these things. Yeah, uh, Monsignor Mannion talks about this balance in, in an article he wrote about the, the balance between clericalism and congregationalism. And, and I do think that that exists, uh, but it does have to be a balance. And we have to understand the clerical things from authority perspective and, you know, all of that type of stuff where they belong, but then where, where does the laity get involved with some of that as well? So, I, I mean, in some ways that gets us into trouble <laughs> when the laity get over involved, but, uh, but in some ways it's incredibly helpful. And I think because of technology, we have a better balance there. So, uh, well, Dr. O'Malley, thank you so much for your time and uh, breaking this open a little more for us. It's a fascinating read. And if people want to go and read the full article, they can go to outeramus.org. Uh, Dr. O'Malley, thank you for your time. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, wonderful to be with you today. All right. God bless.